I'm Crystal Siracus. Welcome to Off the Page, the show featuring good books and good conversations with authors from our own region and from around the world. My guest today is award-winning author Robert J. Sawyer. He's one of my all-time favorite science fiction authors and writes beautiful, thought-provoking stories about the intersection of science and humanity and the questions that we ask ourselves as technology advances. His latest book, The Oppenheimer Alternative, dives into the world of the Manhattan Project. We've all seen the movie, we've all heard the big news this summer, but this story takes us on a slightly different adventure, where the scientist who created the atom bomb now must work together to save the world. Rob, thanks so much for joining me. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for having me, Crystal. So I'm curious, what first fascinated you about Oppenheimer? You know, it wasn't Oppenheimer directly that fascinated me. I got fascinated by somebody who's a very minor character in the movie, but a huge figure in the origin of the atomic bomb, uh, Leo Zillard, a Hungarian uh, physicist who was, in fact, the person who first conceived of the nuclear chain reaction that made both nuclear power and, unfortunately, nuclear weapons possible. And he uh, ghost wrote the letter that Albert Einstein sent to Franklin Delano Roosevelt urging the creation of an atomic weapons research effort, which led to the Manhattan Project. I was fascinated by him because besides being just an incredibly quirky character, he, like me, was a science fiction writer. He had written science fiction stories, and he had been for a time the literary agent of H.G. Wells, of course, the father of modern science fiction. And uh, when you start reading about Zillard, he intersects so frequently with Oppenheimer that I began to realize, even though my first impulse was to follow the science fiction guy, Leo Zillard, the real, of course, story was J. Robert Oppenheimer. And that led to my book, the Oppenheimer Alternative, and of course, independently to Christopher Nolan's big summer blockbuster, Oppenheimer. Now, this book is, I guess we call it alternate science fiction, alternate history science fiction. So it's set in our world with recognizable events that then in your story diverge from what we know, or at least what we think we know. It's also your first historical fiction book. So did writing in such a well-known historical setting change your process at all? It absolutely did, because this was my 23rd novel. And for the previous 22, uh, as one does, you get letters, you know, and sometimes I'd get a letter where somebody would say, take the character of Caitlin, who's the main character in one of my novels called Wake. I don't think Caitlin would have done that, they will say in the letter. And I could write back confidently and say, well, actually... I'm the world's foremost expert on Caitlin, and I can tell you assuredly that she would do that. Well, I'm not the world's foremost expert on J. Robert Oppenheimer or Leo Zillard, who I mentioned a moment ago, or Edward Teller or Leslie R. Groves or any of the people who populate this novel. I had to become expert on them. But there are people who have done their PhDs on each of those individual careers. There, of course, is the Pulitzer Prize winning biography of Oppenheimer by Martin J. Sherwin and Kai Bird, which is the basis for Christopher Nolan's film. And I wanted to make sure that the experts would say, yeah, I got those characters right. But I had to meet that meant that I could not arbitrarily make the characters do whatever, you know, best suited my plot or my nefarious actorial uh, desire for them, but actually reflected who they really were. It was an enormous amount of research. That said, 
They are so larger than life. Oppenheimer, Teller, Enrico Fermi, Hans Bethe, Albert Einstein, all these characters that were I to have made them up, people would have said, oh, come on, Rob, these people are over the top. Nobody could be that brilliant, that witty, and that stupid simultaneously, as Oppenheimer often was. Uh, so history gave me both a burden, but also a gift with these characters. I want to talk more about the stupidity part in just a moment. But uh, first of all, congratulations on your website, which I think I spent as many hours on your website as I did actually reading the book. And <laughs> I I noted it's just such such a wonderful rabbit hole. I also saw when I was reading about your research process that you had something like 133 books about the Manhattan Project and Oppenheimer in this in this era. How on earth do you get through all of that? And most importantly, how do you remember it? Well, so the key is memory, of course, and the older you get, the harder it is. And not only is it harder to uh, remember, but it's harder to recall quickly. So what I did, yes, 130 books, but this is, uh, you know, as Paul Simon would say, the age of miracle and wonder. I bought most of them as eBooks, and then I took them and stripped them of their formatting, dumped them all into a plain text database so that I could search on all 130 at once. If I was looking for a reference to, say, uh, Peter Oppenheimer, who was Robert Oppenheimer's son, uh, and I could just search all 130 books at once and find all the references to him would come up, you know, the, the plain text paragraphs that he was mentioned in. Uh, without that modern technology, I couldn't have written about this more primitive era uh, with any kind of level of, you know, depth uh, that I was able to bring to the Oppenheimer alternative. But yeah, and I did read all those 130 books. I mean, I, I read them all cover to cover, but or, you know, front screen to back screen since they were ebooks. Yeah. But uh, having them all electronically made the searching possible. Mm. Can I ask how long it took to write this book? Three years of my life went into this, which my uh, agent at the time would have said was economically ridiculous. Uh, you know, most professional commercial fiction writers do something between two books a year and a book every two years, three books, uh, sorry, three years for a single book uh, was, a you know, an indulgence. But I'm lucky enough at this point in my career that I can indulge myself. I don't have to write to a deadline and in fact did not have a deadline for this book. I just wanted to finish it when I felt it was done. Uh, and uh, it was an enormously joyous experience for me. I really, first and foremost, am a researcher. Yes, I, I write. I like to think I write well and compelling, enjoyable fiction. But the thing that gives me the most joy is learning things. And to be able to mm -hmm. spend, it took about a year to write the actual prose of the book and two years to prepare to write it by doing all the research. And, and research connected to your novels is nothing new. I mean, all of your books have to be heavily based in research, mostly science, a lot of physics, quantum physics. And and that I think that joy of learning comes very comes very through your writing. Um, so has that just been you, I guess, part of your personality forever? I think it's certainly who I am, but I, you know, where does your personality come from? Well, both of my parents taught at the University of Toronto. Um, and uh, there was, you know, we had, me and my two brothers, uh, had an allowance, of course, which we were allowed to use, you know, to go a movie or buy candy or something. But if we wanted something that fit into the broad category of educational, 
usually in my case, a book of some sort, that didn't have to come out of my allowance. I simply had to say to my dad, uh, who had you know worked right next door to the University of Toronto bookstore, he would go in and special order any book I wanted. As a kid, he had a relationship with the bookstore manager because they weren't used to ordering in you know kids' books about dinosaurs or seashells or stars or anything like that. But he would, if I was curious. Absolutely. That's not your allowance. That's uh, that's being a good, productive human being. And that was supported fully uh, by my parents. And I, I'm very they're both gone now, but I'm very grateful uh, for them, uh, you know, inculcating into me this love of learning and research. Talking more about this book, one of the quotes that Oppenheimer's remembered for is the I am become death destroyer of worlds. And he struggled with the ethical implications of the bomb to a degree, more after, I think, the bomb, the second bomb was dropped on Nagasaki. And he struggled with that in the years after World War II. Was that something that you really wanted to explore in this book, his kind of internal reckoning with what they did? Absolutely. Uh, You know, the line you just quoted, now I'm become death, the destroyer of worlds is unless you're Hindu, the most famous line, uh, you know, that most people have every only line most people even know of the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, And the interesting thing about that particular odd phrasing, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds is it's Oppenheimer's own translation. He went out and learned Sanskrit. He was fascinated by everything, including Eastern mysticism. And he went out to and learned Sanskrit so he could read the Gita in its original Hindu. And uh, that's his translation into English, that famous phrasing of it. Uh, what made him an interesting character, and you know, I've uh, obviously I want people to buy my book, The Oppenheimer Alternative, but I keep coming back to the book that Nolan used, mm-hmm. American Prometheus. The um, subtitle of that Pulitzer Prize winning biography is The Triumph and Tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer. And it was the highs and lows of this character, uh, both uh, professionally, but also ethically. How low can you go? You're a scientist and somebody says to you, I want you to build me a device that's going to wipe out hundreds of thousands and potentially eventually millions of people. Will you do it? And he said, not no. I refuse. That's a reprehensible thing. He said, and this also is his actual phrase, that's a sweet problem. He was intrigued by the physics and set aside all of the ethics until it was really a little too late to be worrying about the ethics after people had already been killed in their tens of thousands in Japan. Hmm. And and you delve into this in your book to a degree, and I think this is a part of history that maybe not as many people are aware of, that there are were was this petition that was circulated to try to get the government to not drop the bombs onto Japan to do a, a testing somewhere to showcase that power? Is that something that you've gotten feedback about since the book came came out? Absolutely. And the petition, by the way, was uh, written by Leo Ziller, the person we started our conversation with this uh, this session. Um, he uh, absolutely was uh, the conscience of all of this. He was the guy who said, you know, we've got to make this. But he said, Zillard said, we've got to make this because if we don't make it, we being the allies, the Germans will make it. And we all know what's going on in Germany, you know, with uh, Hitler and World War II. Uh, we don't want them, the Nazis, to have the supreme weapon. We have to have it first and use it on Berlin. That was the original target for all of this. Um, and yeah, I've gotten pushback because a lot of people have said, 
well, wait a minute, we had to use the bomb. The bomb ended the war, you know, the war in Europe had ended when Adolf Hitler put a bullet through his own head. We had to end the war in Pacific. Tens of thousands of American boys would have died invading Japan to save not just American lives, but also Japanese lives by limiting the destruction. That's simply not true. The Japanese had been making back-channel overtures, political overtures, uh, through diplomatic channels to the United States to surrender for almost a year before the bombs were actually dropped in August of 1945. They knew they were defeated. They had some crazy generals, but they knew they were defeated. They wanted to stand down. And the United States pushed ahead with developing the bomb. And as on the day, the, the, the most horrific line in all the history, and one that Nolan completely leaves out of his film, to me is this. On July 16th, 1945, the Trinity test was done in near Alamogordo, New Mexico. The first bomb set off as a test. Nobody was supposed to be hurt. And indeed, nobody was. And Oppenheimer said on that day, uh, now the war is over. And General Leslie R. Groves, and this comes from Groves's own autobiography, a book from 1962 called Now It Can Be Told. It's not a secret, but it's often ignored. Groves said, yes, as soon as we drop two bombs on Japan, not one. The intention was never just to drop one bomb and show them the superior weapon and let them uh, stand down. It was to try the two different competing bomb designs, Fat Man and Little Boy, on two civilian targets and see which one does the most damage. And that's why there were bombs dropped just 72 hours apart. There was no opportunity. Uh, you know, uh, Hiroshima was destroyed. The railway lines were out. The telegraph lines were out. Uh, there was no uh, television. There was no way the high command in Tokyo had even begun to assess what had happened in Hiroshima before the second drop bomb was dropped uh, on Nagasaki. It was an aggressive act to attack Japan that way. And Oppenheimer came to realize that and became a nuclear arms uh, control advocate for the rest of his life after this. And then if we go back to your book, The Oppenheimer Alternative, it seems that there then you create this problem that gives these scientists who were part of this creation of death, a chance to save the world. Do you want to That's talk a little bit about that? Exactly. You know, I gave the subtitle of American Prometheus, the triumph and tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer. Priscilla McMillan, a, a Harvard historian, has a great bio called The Ruin of J. Robert Oppenheimer. If you look through all the nonfiction about Oppenheimer, they all have these titles or subtitles about how uh, in the end, he was just destroyed. And I, you know, I, I like character arc in any piece of fiction where there's some redemption, where there's an opportunity. Okay, character's done something awful, but how can they come out of that? Well, Oppenheimer never had that opportunity in real life. But my working title for my book was not the Oppenheimer alternative. It was, in fact, the Oppenheimer redemption. And I wanted to set up a scenario uh, that didn't contradict anything we knew about Oppenheimer or his life or the life of the scientists around him in which Oppenheimer had a chance to flip the script from now we are now I am become death the destroyer of worlds to now we meaning he and his cohort of Manhattan Project physicists now we are become life the saviors of our world that didn't happen in the real uh history but in my alternate or secret history of the Manhattan Project, I gave him that chance. And uh, I think 
uh, you know, any character story uh, that simply starts off the character on top and ends with the character on bottom is a tragedy. And we keep referring to the tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer. Eh, tragedy has its place. But I think if we're all as a species going to come out of the specter, come out of the shadow of uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, we have to look for some redemption. And that's what the Oppenheimer alternative is mm -hmm. about. And if people are new to your books, I think they, you know, one of the one of the best things I think about your writing is that it's not about aliens invading, blowing stuff up. It's about the ethical explorations of science, of the things that we do with science. And again, reading on your website and through some of interviews with this, there was this conversation about this idea that we tend to view, especially scientists of this particular area. If we look at the geniuses that were involved with the Manhattan Project, that there's this idea of pure science, that these scientists are not human, that they're separate from greed or ambition. So many of your books really tear into that trope, I think. So what is it about those deep ethical issues that is so interesting to you? You know, I think it's simply being an engaged human being. Uh, we live in, I, I use the Paul Simon line, the age of miracle and wonder, all of the things that we wrestle with today. Uh, even if you, you know, one of the most divisive issues, obviously, in the United States right now is the abortion issue. Why is the abortion issue so front and center? Well, because science has made it possible for abortion to now be clean, safe, and not you know life-threatening to the mother. It's not the back alley operation of centuries of history leading up to it, where everybody could say, that's a horrible process, and the mother is just as likely to die as is the fetus. Now, science has made it antiseptic and clean. And now there's a huge divide in public thinking about you know uh, whether or not the fact that now it's antiseptic and clean and safe for the mother, whether it's also ethical. And each individual person will make their decision about that. I'm not going to preach what my position might be on it one way or the other. But the fact is, it's a scientific thing that made that possible. The incredible divide between the rich and the poor. You look at the billionaires that we all talk about and decry every day. Every one of them is the head of a high tech company. It's science that made possible Amazon's distribution system. It's science that made possible Elon Musk's uh, you know, uh, various ventures. Uh, so we live in a world where every ethical conundrum that we face, the death penalty, of course, another one, right? The fact that we can cleanly and simply execute prisoners now without it violating the constitutional um, prohibition against cruel and unusual punishment, right? That's a scientific conundrum. And so all of science fiction, to me, you know, you mentioned my website, which the URL is sfwriter.com, S for science, F for fiction. But I don't think it's the right name for this genre. It's not science fiction. It's not sci-fi. It's philosophical fiction. It's phi, phi, P-H-I-F-I, phi, phi, philosophical fiction, because it's science. You know, Oppenheimer was cold and almost um, psychopathic when he said, oh, how do we kill all these people? That's a sweet problem. Science devoid of conscience, of morality, of ethics is a horrific thing. And science fiction is that literature where we explore 
those questions of morality, ethics, and so forth, uh, in the context of the science and technological advance that is shaping every aspect of our lives. You did an interview with Mike Glyer, who runs the fantastic File 770 website back when the first book first came out. And I was struck by your comparison of the secret work of the Manhattan Project and what's currently happening with AI. And so now this is even three years later. And can you talk a little bit more about, because this feels very scary to me, you know, the Manhattan Project happened so much in secret. We don't know what's going on with AI. There's no regulation around it. And and you see parallels between what happened then and what is happening now, right? Yes. And, you know, remember the Manhattan Project was so secret that when uh, Truman was sworn in as president after the death of FDR, Truman, who had been vice president of the United States, had no idea that there was a Manhattan Project, that the United States was trying to build atomic bombs. So all of that was happening uh, completely devoid of oversight by Congress or by the you know anybody but the president himself, FDR. Uh, and the one difference that gives us me a little bit of hope is so much of this AI stuff is now public. The public is engaged in the debate right now. And so many of, uh, you know, hear this phrase applied to several of them, the godfathers of AI, the founders of modern artificial intelligence research are practically begging Washington and here in Canada, Ottawa and Brussels for the European Union and so forth to intervene, to create an, uh, a legal and ethical framework under which this research can be undertaken because they are conscious of the parallels. So this is an existential threat. And right now, the only thing that is driving it is a profit motive. And profit motive as a driver uh, has never resulted in general beneficence for the entire population. Uh, we uh, science fiction writers feel like Cassandra from Greek mythology. Mm. We have been warning in the case of nuclear weapons, we were warning way before. H.G. Wells, a science fiction writer, was the one who coined the phrase atomic bomb way before there was such a thing. Uh, we've been warning, warned about that, and our warnings went unheeded, and the bombs were actually used. We've been warning, you know, you can go back even earlier in print, but 1968 is when the movie 2001 A Space Odyssey came out, which was the first time that we sort of saw an AI with a nefarious agenda. He tried to kill everybody aboard the spaceship Discovery, almost succeeded, uh, put his desires ahead of those of the humans that he was supposedly serving. We've been warning about that for an awfully long time. And now that it's here, people are saying, oh, well, why didn't anybody tell us that this might be an existential threat? And it drives me and my colleagues nuts because we said it as loudly and as clearly as possible. And yet people just blithely went ahead and made it anyway. You know, one of the other things that I love so much about your books, your books are hopeful. You know, we talk about these terrifying issues, the science that, you know, could cause so much that is wrong in the world, but your books are more about people coming together to create, to challenge ideas, to look to a future um, that that is full of hope. And I think that science fiction, that kind of science fiction is becoming a bit harder to find these days. Do you agree with that? It really is. You know, the most popular, if you look at, say, 
uh, in a bookstore or you go to Netflix and you look for just its recommendations of, say, science fiction films. The most popular subgenre is dystopian. And mm -hmm. I happen to be like George R. R. Martin. I use an old word processor. I use WordStar for DOS. Came out in 1992. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, but the interesting thing about that is I was just yesterday spell checking a document and it came across the word I'd use, dystopian. And it stopped and said, did you mean dustpin? dustbin? Right. It didn't know the word dystopian. That's just 1992. It was not a general part of our lexicon. Utopian. Yes. Right. We were always striving for that perfect world. Uh, but dystopian, the horrible world, was not a common word in a spell checker that had 100,000 words in its, uh, you know, in its dictionary. And now it is the principal form of our envisioning of the future. And honestly, I think that has a lot to do with just the economic realities of where we live in. I and every generation through the 20th century, uh, my generation, I was born in 1960, and the ones that preceded me, uh, all had one thing in common. We knew that we were going to have it better off than our parents had it, that we would have more wealth, more opportunity, probably more peace in the world than my than our parents had. And the generation that came after, if not the generation born in 1980, certainly the generation of millennials in 2000 and the generation since have all had to face the reality that they're maybe not going to own their own home. And they might not have a job. Even if they go to university and get that degree, it doesn't guarantee full employment and a comfortable retirement. The world is demonstrably one now where the future for most young people is not as bright as the past was. And uh, that drives people to this dystopian view of reality. Well, it's just all going downhill from here. So one of the other jobs of science fiction, despite some of it, because we're talking about very heavy stuff, Oppenheimer, mm -hmm. nuclear weapons, despite the patina of you know negativity that comes onto any conversation about that, you're right. I think unless there are hopeful, optimistic scenarios put out in front uh, as kind of, hey, you know, we could do this instead of climate uh, degradation, instead of, you know, when Margaret Atwood, my fellow Canadian, wrote The Handmaid's Tale in 1985, she did not think she was writing a, a user's manual for, uh, uh, you know, the way the world mm -hmm. might go. She is appalled, as she should be, and everybody is, that the world, uh, in terms of, you know, the rights of women, uh, which seems so bright in the 1960s with, you know, second wave feminism, uh, becoming this world where uh, what were taken as settled law, for instance, is being clawed back. Uh, so, yeah, we need science fiction scenarios that say, hey, you know, if you make this course correction, maybe we can come out of this with our essential liberty, individuality, dignity uh, and environmental beauty intact. And I try to write those optimistic scenarios. We're just about out of time. Are you working on a new project now? Anything you can share with us? I am, absolutely. And because uh, you were spot on when you said we're at that moment of artificial intelligence, this much has been said about AI. And I'm writing a book right now about our relationship with AI. Uh, when it uh, is there a win-win scenario? when AI clearly will be the dominant intelligence on this planet, is there a way for us to come out and still be not any longer 
the masters of creation, uh, but still have lives that are worth living. And um, it's it that's going to be a controversial book uh, because what I'm going to say is we're going to have to make compromises. We're going to have to fundamentally change uh, the Canadian uh, equivalent of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, which is in your founding documents in Canada. It's peace, order, and good government. And that latter, the peace, order, and good government, uh, not life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, may be all we can hope for in the age of AI. Well, I hope when this comes out, you'll come back on the show and we can talk about it. I'd love to, Crystal. Thank you. The Oppenheimer Alternative by Robert J. Sawyer is available now. Off the Page is a production of WSKG Public Media. I'm your host and producer, Crystal Sarakis. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me next time we go Off the Page. <laughs> <laughs>